Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. Hello, this episode of Victor's Children is the recording of a discussion about my new book, Future on Fire, Capitalism and the Politics of Climate Change, that took place online on October the 22nd, 2022. I hope you find it worth listening to. We are gathered here tonight virtually to celebrate the launch of a wonderful book. And of course, that book is Future on Fire. Capitalism and the Politics of Climate Change by David Camfield. Uh, now, Future on Fire argues for the vital importance of disruptive mass social movement, that movements that have the potential to force governments to make the changes that we need. Uh, refusing to despair, its author David Camfield argues that even a ravaged planet is worth fighting for, and that ultimately the only solution to the ecological crisis created by capitalism is a transition to eco-socialism. And we'll be hearing from a number of folks uh, about the ideas raised in this book, and there'll also be a really vibrant and uh, energizing discussion, I think, this evening. Uh, so with that in mind, I'm just going to introduce tonight's panelists, and then I will take my leave. So your host for the evening, Fiona Jeffries, is an editor at Fernwood Publishing. Sarah Burrell is a socialist, abolitionist, and writer from Treaty 4. Their work has appeared in Briar Patch Magazine, the Saskatchewan Dispatch, and Media Co-op, among others. They are the host of the Unmaking Saskatchewan podcast. James Hutt is an organizer and writer on unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe territory, Ottawa. He has led campaigns and organizing for unions and advocacy groups across Canada. James is also the climate justice columnist for Our Times Magazine. Simon Desai is the editor of Briar Patch Magazine, an award-winning national magazine of grassroots politics and action. She's also the co-founder of the Sask Dispatch, a progressive independent publication in Saskatchewan. And of course, author David Canfield teaches labor studies and sociology at the University of Manitoba and has been involved in social justice efforts since high school. He is the author of We Can Do Better, Ideas for Changing Society, and Canadian Labor in Crisis. Reinventing the Workers' Movement. We'll be hearing from all those folks this evening, but for now, please join me in welcoming your host, Fiona Jeffries. Hi, everyone. Um, we are going to get started while our uh, speakers and presenters turn on their cameras and uh, show themselves. <laughs> um, so thanks for that introduction, John, and thanks everyone for being here, and thank you to uh, the folks who are joining us online. It's great to have you here in this discussion about this amazing book. Um, so we're just going to start uh, right into it and have our commentators just uh, say some words about about this wonderful book, 
uh, we're going to go in order of Sarah and then James and then Saima and then uh, David is going to say some words in response uh, and also read from the book. And then we'll launch into a discussion uh, with the audience and with one another. So why don't you take it away, Sarah? Thank you so much, Fiona. Uh, and thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, as John said, I am a socialist and abolitionist uh, living on Treaty 4. I'm a writer and editor previously with the SAS Dispatch, um, and I'm currently a communications officer for research and analysis with the Council of Canadians. Uh, the through line in all of my work is story. I'm really interested in narrativization and the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the language that we use and the frameworks that exist for us to try and understand and interpret what is happening to us and what has happened to us and what will happen to us. I think story is really the way that we grasp our possibilities for futurity as individuals and as communities and as species. And the language that we use when we tell, tell those stories really impacts the possibilities that we see for ourselves. Uh, it can open doors and it can close them. And climate change and the narrative of climate change is something that has really damaged our ability to storytell into the future. And that's for good reason. Climate change is an existential threat. And there's lots of really good writing and reporting out there about the climate crisis by journalists and scientists and activists. And they're trying to tell a story with the urgency that it needs. And they're trying to tell a story in a way that is ethical and scientific and compassionate towards those who are suffering the most from the climate crisis and those who are justifiably terrified. They're trying to tell stories that will motivate people and that will pressure governments into actually doing something. And they're trying to tell a story that helps people grasp exactly how much, like how high this stakes are. And what that has often meant, I think, is storytelling around climate change that is much more measured and cautious than maybe more the situation warrants, or that tries very hard to avoid any kind of language or assertions that could be seen as ideological, or that is really focused on the immediate future and very focused on the urgency of dismantling fossil fuel infrastructure. We get a lot of language about windows rapidly closing and projections for a future that apparently ends at 2100. And that's all necessary reporting and necessary analysis. I don't think people are wrong for telling those stories or that they should stop doing so. But I do think we need to be integrating new story into that. We need to be acknowledging that for some places in the world, the window is closed. There are going to be places on earth that are uninhabitable within the lifetime of many of the people who are here today. And in fact, we're already seeing people who are forced to leave their homes because where they live has become too hot or too dry or too unpredictable to sustain a reasonable standard of living. We need to be acknowledging that right now we are quite likely going to exceed two degrees of warming. And that means telling the story of how we can and must reorganize our society. And I really think that Future on Fire does that. We often see language used that says, if X happens, then it's game over. And if we don't get rid of fossil fuels by this date, then we're screwed. And it's partly true, but whatever horrific tipping points we reach, there will be humans alive on Earth for a significant amount of time afterwards. And as David says in the book, as long as there are humans alive on Earth, it matters what their social conditions are. And it's really urgent that we name that and that we understand that the struggle we're in right now is not just a struggle against fossil fuels, although it absolutely is that. It's a struggle against a brutalizing system and that we need to change the structure of our society regardless of the tipping points we pass. We need to have a narrative and a framework of understanding that can show us 
a possible future, even in the midst of incalculable loss. Humans alive in 50 years, 100 years, 150 years are, are going to continue to have children and love them and will continue to feel joy and pain and will continue to want better lives. And it's really critical for us to work not just towards limiting the impacts of climate change, but towards a just and equitable system that will provide the best possible life under unimaginable climatic circumstances. And so I, I think that Future on Fire is a really valuable contribution for the fact of confronting the worst possibilities and remaining steadfast in its belief that society can be organized better and that whatever windows may close on preserving certain ecosystems, on limiting heating to a certain degree, the window to organize society in a way that is ethical and just will never ever close as long as there are people alive on earth. So I, I really thank David for putting this out into the world. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, uh, James, do you want to? Sure, thank you. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here and honored to be speaking about this incredible book. I first got to know David through his book, Canadian Labor on Crisis, which I think came out in 2014. Correct me if I'm wrong, David. Uh, but I, it's funny because I read it at the time and I was a climate activist who was only starting to think about labor and how to relate to it. Um, and now, years later, I find myself firmly entrenched in labor and only kind of doing a bit of climate indirectly that you, David has come out with this book on the climate movement. And I wish I could have read this, you know, years ago, all, all way back then. It would have saved me a lot of time. I think there's some really invaluable lessons and like a roadmap in here and a survey of the landscape that would have stopped me from spending a whole bunch of misdirected energy just trying to figure out how do we actually tackle climate change. Um, and I think that misdirected energy is everywhere in the movement. And I, I also think it's a bit funny because as I kind of straddle labor and climate and go around like that for the labor movement, I am somehow still technically a young worker, whereas for the climate movement, I am old. I am very, very old. Like they're going to put me in a glue factory soon. Um, and I'm curious just to hear about like who's here tonight and who's the audience that is like picking up the book. Um, so I don't know, John, if I'm breaking the fourth wall here, but I'd love it if people could just put their name, where they're from, and if they're like a student or if they work and doing what into the chat, just to get a better sense of the audience. Um, cause for me, you know, I, I came through climate to labor and really kind of find a home here and working on climate in that way. Um, and I think this talk is particularly, uh, important right now because we are on the eve of COP27, the international climate negotiations about to kick off, uh, next month in, uh, yeah. And, you know, all the countries will send their negotiators to hammer out a deal and like, Every year, Canada will show up and promise an even bigger, flashier, more ambitious target than the one they didn't meet last time. Um, and it's this kind of perennial treadmill. And I first kind of got my start or cut my teeth as a climate activist in COP17 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, we went and really tried to do a whole bunch of tactics to expose the Canadian government and shame them into doing the right thing or using uh, like pressure on the negotiators. And, you know, we ended up doing some stuff and getting kicked out and embarrassing Canada on the international stage while the environment minister at the time was pulling out of the Kyoto Accord. And we considered that a win. Um, but of course, business as usual continued. The cops have continued and there's still not a deal in sight. There's still no binding targets that's actually going to get us to the world we need. And I think we kind of have to ask why. And David's book, Future on Fire, is brilliant in that regard because it asks, how did we get here? What is climate change? Who is it uh, impacting and how? And really highlights how we structure society and how that's determined by it. And then for me, the really important pragmatic question is then what do we do about it? And David uh, is clear that 
the only answer that can save us is social movements and how we build people en masse to come together and to confront capital. The other thing that David does is clearly locate the problem as capitalism. It's not just a few bad apples, it's not the wrong pol- uh, politicians, but it is the laws in motion of capital, of capital that are forcing us down this road to this existential threat to our entire species and ask, why can't we do anything about it? Why does cop after cop, sorry, I keep saying cop, but I realized it didn't actually spell out that acronym. Apologies. This is the problem with the climate movement. Uh, one of them. Uh, it's the conference of parties. It just means the UN climate negotiations. Um, why haven't any of them like really produced change? And why, if we're thinking about the fact that countries send the negotiators and what they do there is probably indicative, indicative of what happens at home, why haven't social movements been able to put enough pressure on them to actually win? And I think that's a really good question. Um, and David eh, hones in on it. He kind of does this beautiful roadmap of the climate uh, landscape and takes us through false solutions in terms of geoengineering uh, or businesses greening themselves to also ineffective and fake strategies, thinking about like electing a few like climate partisan, nonpartisan climate champions across political parties or pushing the NDP to the left or, you know, taking over the Green Party or what have you. And kind of all the questions that I and many others have been grappling with for years and thinking about what do we actually do about it? Uh, and then why aren't we, they working? And I think David, uh, does, the book does this really well in saying that if we're incorrect in identifying the problem, the strategies for solving it is never going to be that effectual. It doesn't matter how much we tinker at the edges in a lot of these things, unless we're actually building the power through social movements to confront capital and push back and win reforms from them. We're missing and we're missing kind of the forest for the trees. Um, and I kind of want to just put out two provocative, uh, points that I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on. Um, and they are that, one, I don't think we actually have a climate movement in Canada. David, you're clear that social movements are the one thing that will save us, and I absolutely agree. Um, but I would add that in Canada, what we actually have are a handful of nonprofit organizations who have paid staff, who are funded by capitalists and their foundations that ultimately set the contours of the climate movement. And in my mind, I see that as an obstacle to a genuine democratic mass movement of people bubbling up to have the power to confront capital. Um, and I think, you know, whatever NGO climate justice organization is out there, they're probably, some are doing really good work. Some are just, you know, front groups for the liberal party. Um, but there's a limit to what they can do in terms of pushing reforms, deepening uh, resource and wealth redistribution. But there's also like a fundamental lacking piece of democracy in which if I'm an everyday person where I live here in Ottawa, how do I actually get involved, gain skills and set strategy or provide feedback and set the course? And I don't think we can have a climate movement capable of winning the reforms we need without figuring out how to deal with that nonprofit industrial complex and allowing something to break through that is a democratic mass organization and allows us to do something more effective. Um, I expect I'm getting a bit short on time, so I'm going to wrap up by just saying that the other point I wanted to raise is then if it's mass movements, mass social movements, what are we getting to do? And for me, the answer has to be, and the one that I've been thinking about over the last years as I think about my energies, is workers and getting working people at the point of production and reproduction to come together and really pose a threat to capital. That's kind of the only thing that can withstand and bring capital to its knees, at least temporarily, to eke out some of these reforms. And so for me, I'll just wrap by saying, and I'm excited to hear all of your thoughts on that, but 
that, David, this is a brilliant conversation you've started. And I think Future on Fire does a terrific job of laying out it, what climate change is and how to think about it and how we think about the way forward, especially for being such a small book. It's very short and it's packed with brilliant information. And you give uh, the readers uh, a both of internationalism, of other struggles and how they have to come together and other histories that we can draw on, um, particularly like the parts you drew on in Palestine and you know, Jewish resistance during World War II were brilliant. And like, this is all so much like valuable insight I wish I had over a decade ago. And I'd encourage everyone to read and pick it up. So it'll save you a lot of time that I wish I would have saved. Thanks so much, James and Sarah, for those remarks. My name is Saima. Um, I am the editor of a magazine called Briar Patch Magazine based in Treaty 4 territory in Regina, Saskatchewan. Um, I've had the great pleasure of working with Nate David on a number of different articles for Briar Patch. Uh, the very first issue of Briar Patch I ever edited about four years ago, David had an article uh, in that issue, what he's written for Briar Patch, the books that he's published, what he's written for other publications has been so important and formative to my thinking, um, especially as someone who uh, you know, as the editor of a publication that focuses on social movements, I think having David as almost like a compass um, in terms of my politics, knowing, um, you know, how to develop my thinking around social movements and grassroots struggles has been uh, so important to me. Um, I'll confess that I accidentally prepared remarks for this discussion about Briar Patch instead of about the book. So I'm going to be speaking a little off the cuff. Um, but it will mean that you're going to get my most raw, unfiltered thoughts about this book. I did reread it in one sitting today, which I think really is one of the um, one of the great things I can say about this book is that it's not like an 800 page tome. Uh, you can, you know, read it in an afternoon, which I love in a book, because when I when I. Okay, so I, I work on the length of magazine articles, so I often don't have patience for 800-word tomes. Um, and when I pick up a, a book and when I assess whether a book is really good and whether it's useful, not only to me, but the people in my life, I think about, is this a book that I could give to my mom? Um, and would it help sharpen her political understanding and analysis? For context, I didn't really grow up in a leftist family I have lots and lots of conversations about politics with my family. My way of forming arguments, of thinking about my own politics, about understanding what is a convincing argument, what is um, an internally consistent argument, um, what is going to move people, what is an emotionally moving argument, come from my discussions with my parents who very often disagree with me. Um, and so I think for me, the mark of a really good book is feeling like after I read this book, I want to give it, I want to give it to my mom. I want to give it to my dad and, um, and being grateful that it addresses the questions that I'm having a hard time changing their minds about. So um, with this book, what that means is I think there's this real sense of despair and hopelessness going around um, this feeling that we're approaching this tipping point, and after the tipping point, there's just nothing to be done that we should throw up our hands. This feeling that for people with wealth, um, like my family, what we should do is use that wealth to shore up our own safety and the safety of our loved ones, and um, and to basically keep 
running from climate change to put distance and walls between us and the impacts of climate change using money for as long as possible. Um, and I think that this book is really useful because it starts to um, show cracks in that argument. And there's, you know, a really deep humanity at the core of this book, a deep argument for, um, for the fact that, you know, um, that it is deeply irresponsible to abandon um, the people who are currently and will feel the first and um, most devastating impacts of climate change. Um, I think it also, another, you know, point that I hear from the people in my life when I have discussions about climate change with them is this, this sense that like it's humanity that's at fault for climate change. Um, and I think that that is an argument that is very convenient for fossil fuel companies that we're somehow all responsible for climate change. Um, and in actuality, we know that um, that you know, when, when we say that climate change is caused by humans, it, it sort of um, covers up the fact that climate change was caused by a handful of companies. It was caused by capitalism and the demands of capitalism and the internal logics of capitalism um, and of market competition. Um, and it ignores the fact that, you know, many of the people um, who are fighting the hardest right now to mitigate the impacts of climate change on their community, indigenous peoples, black people, um, were not even considered human for like a long part of the history of climate change. Um, and now, you know, conveniently, when it's convenient for fossil fuel companies to say, oh, climate change is caused by humans and we're all responsible for changing our consumption and our personal lifestyles, uh, suddenly, you know, people who were previously not considered human, um, people who suffered through colonization are still suffering through colonization, suffered through um, the transatlantic slave trade, all, you know, sort of precursors and necessary foundations for climate change um, to occur and for capitalism to occur. Those people are now, you know, suddenly also tasked with uh, being some of the people who caused climate change. Um, so, those are a few of the the points that I really appreciated in the book that I I feel like it makes a really important incisive intervention that is so necessary. It understands the messages that most people are receiving about climate change right now. Those messages that are demoralizing, that are distracting, that are purposefully obscuring what needs to be done and what has happened, um, and it really just cuts through all of that like a hot knife through butter and it shows us who's responsible and what needs to be done, which is, you know, right now when things feel so confusing and so urgent, that kind of clarity I think is really, really valuable. And so I really encourage you to pick up this book, to read it and to give it to your mom. Well, I'd really uh, like to start by thanking Sarah, James and Simon for those words. Um, I respect all three of you enormously. And so to hear you share the thoughts uh, that you have about the book is, is very meaningful. Uh, I want to thank everyone for coming as well, whether you're watching um, on YouTube or uh, in this Zoom event. Um, because I'm looking forward to the discussion, what I'm just going to do is read a few pages from um, the fourth chapter of the book, Even a Ravaged Planet is Worth Fighting For. 
uh, which some some of the the ideas here have been have touched on um, in in the comments so far. So it's not uncommon to hear people say that we have until 2030 to drastically cut emissions or it's game over, folks, as one climate activist in Canada put it. This sense of urgency is extremely important. There's nothing wrong with the intentions of people who say such things or carry placards or demonstrations with that message. That said, there are problems with such all or nothing thinking about cutting emissions. One problem is that if more than a few climate scientists reach the conclusion that emissions levels make future warming over two degrees, that's over two degrees above pre-industrial average temperatures, uh, inevitable or close to inevitable, people who believe that this means the end of the world will experience intense mental distress. The emotional impact of thinking about what climate change is doing and could do in the future to the lives of many millions of people is already causing a lot of distress, which will only increase as the planet heats up. This misery is a burden for the people who experience it. It also makes it harder for them to take part in collective action for climate justice, which is becoming all the more important and can also help us cope with the distress connected to awareness of climate change. Another problem is that all or nothing thinking about emissions can lead people to support climate politics that offer little or no challenge to social injustice. It's not only denial about the need for action or ineffective policy proposals that should concern climate justice supporters. There are also political responses that aim to quickly reduce emissions in drastic ways, but that don't respect the principles of climate justice. If global greenhouse gas emission levels continue to make heating over two degrees probable, more people are likely to endorse urgent calls for, uh, for deep emission cuts that aren't linked to social justice, if those calls seem the most realistic or politically acceptable response. For example, there may be more moves to slash emissions that aren't accompanied by commitments to create decent jobs for workers whose jobs will be eliminated in the transition from fossil fuels. Or there may be plans to expand nuclear power generation whose ecological and social consequences should rule it out for supporters of climate justice. Policies could be proposed that would bring about a speedy transition from fossil energy, but reduce funding for public services and raise taxes in regressive ways to pay for it. Desperation could drive people to form underground cells to carry out sabotage or worse, assassination attempts on government figures or executives of fossil fuel firms. Even worse is the prospect of support for a multinational scheme to reduce global emissions and construct a system of solar radiation management to lower temperatures. Solar radiation management is a kind of geoengineering that would inject synthetic aerosols into Earth's atmosphere in order to reflect more sunlight and cool the planet. Once established, it would have to be maintained far into the future. Interrupting the injections would trigger devastating warming. For such a scheme to be effective, there would have to be some kind of multinational institution with the ability to oversee it. This would require backup from decisive power, ultimately military might, over the world to enforce the rules of the solar radiation management scheme. Less frightening proposals could still be easily tied to suspending civil and democratic rights, flowing with today's trends towards minimal demo minimalist democracy. It's not hard to imagine politicians arguing that the climate emergency justifies not only bold state action to transition from fossil fuels, but also forcibly relocating people from coastal areas, further restricting cross-border migration, banning strikes, or overriding the rights of indigenous peoples. An endless range of reactionary policies could be justified in the name of saving Earth. All or nothing thinking about cutting greenhouse gas emissions encourages acceptance of such policies. Quite simply, the world won't end if we learn that future warming over two degrees has become inevitable, with the prospect of feedbacks further accelerating climate change. It won't be game over for the billions of people alive at the time. Instead, we would find ourselves facing an even more frightening future. The need for a comprehensive reorganization of human societies in the reasonably near term would become even clearer than it is today, but who will survive and how they will live would be even more of a question. If we find ourselves in this situation, it will be even more important than it is now to struggle for a just transition from fossil fuels and other sources of greenhouse gas emissions. 
the difference between a world with an average temperature 2.5 degrees higher than pre-industrial levels in 2100 and still warming, and one that's 3.5 degrees hotter and warming even faster, the difference between historically unprecedented suffering and full-on apocalypse, will be measured in millions of deaths. The struggle over how societies adapt to climate change, the fight for what we can call just adaptation, will also grow in importance as the climate scenario worsens. Andreas Mom is right. Overshoot of targets for climate mitigation calls for more, not less resistance. As long as humans are around, resistance is the path to survival in all weathers. It didn't become passe in 2009, and it won't do so in 2029. Well, thank you, David, and thank you, everyone, for your brilliant, interesting comments. And um, I'll just say, uh, reiterate uh, uh, John's uh, point in the chat, which is if you want to ask any questions, please do so in the Q&A, and we will get to them. Um, so while people are revving up and thinking about their questions or comments, interventions, uh, I will just uh, ask a question. I think what's interesting about all of your comments and about something that I was thinking while I was reading the book, too, and I totally agree with Simon, it is an excellent example of a book that is written to be read in um, uh, in a couple of sittings, and it's very, uh, you know, the pacing is excellent, and it's very informative, and it does not do what a lot of, uh, I think, people expect from climate literature, which is talk about, um, sort of focus on how doomed we are. And I want to talk about that a little bit or ask you a little bit about that, David, and, and because all of your comments, um, while thinking about and wanting us to, to um, attend to the urgency and the uh, violence of, of capitalist climate crisis, um, also, you are all um, concerned or, or interested in the uh, or raise the question of hope and the, the um, of how do we kind of maintain a sense of hope or how what is the emotional effect of of this uh, some somewhat overwhelming or not somewhat totally overwhelming feeling? So I'm just curious about your. I have a couple questions, but maybe first I'll ask. What provoked you to write the book in the first place in this way and using this form and using this framework, particularly about like thinking about the future and also using this um, terminology of fire, which both um, connotes struggle as well as, um, you know, urgency and suffering and so on. Does that make sense? The question, David? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the the fire part of it, um, I have to just, Credit to my um, editor at PM <laughs> that uh, came up with with that as as a way of thinking about it uh, for the title. But I think it does have that meaning, which you you know you, you got it. Um, that was what we were thinking. Um, but in terms of how I came to write it, you know, it was um, really my experience. Um, I'd been thinking about some of these questions, and I was able to teach a course um, that in part dealt with them at university. Um, but then it was in the summer of 2019 when it was clear to me that something was really changing in terms of mobilization for the September 2019 climate strikes, the youth climate strikes. Um, and I found myself in Winnipeg where um, it's, Winnipeg is a city in the summer where people don't go to political meetings because it's the few months, which is where it's warm and people like to be outside and not inside. And I found myself in, in summer evenings in meetings with more people than I'd been in meetings with for ages. So there was people would come out week after week, day after day. Um, there was real momentum. And, you know, we, many of us experienced the, you know, amazing youth 
mostly youth, but not only youth mobilizations that happened in September of 2019, which seems a very means a very different political moment than the one we're in now. But it, my experience uh, was it was very inspiring being part of uh, this convergence of people uh, in the mobilization for that um, for that day. But at the same time, it was really clear to me that there were some uh, big weaknesses in terms of people's political understanding of social movements and change and what we're up against, all these kinds of questions. So I thought something I could try to contribute um, to people like the, you know, the participants in, in that organizing um, and others who are grappling with the questions of, of climate change uh, would be something like this. Um, so, and then because I have a job that, um, where, you know, I have the, the luxury and at the same time, the the imposed requirement to publish uh, that I thought, well, I should try as an ethical thing to try to contribute something to, um, to this. And um, so that's, that's the story of how it came to be the, the book that it is. Interesting. That it just made your answer just made me think of a follow-up question that, to, that I had while I was reading it. And also that speaks to something that James raised, which is um, around thinking about the, the, the struggle aspect of it, mass movement. And if you did, just uh, to if you can respond to James's uh, provo provocation that we don't actually have a climate movement, and and you because you do talk about this sort of problematic what you see as problematic climate movements and more and hopeful uh, revolutionary climate movements, and I'm wondering if you can um, sort of talk a little bit about what, what what are the distinctions between those and what makes those distinctions important. Okay, I'll, I'll try to be uh, brief on this so to make time for other people. But um, I, I agree with James's point. I think it's a really important one uh, because there was a climate movement in late 2019 in the Canadian state. I mean, there were, if you look at the number of people who were taking action, and I talk a little bit in the book about what we mean by movement. So I think the term social movement is incredibly overused and that it's not a kind of a, a pedantic point because it actually... Uh, misleads us when we call small groups or small mobilizations a social movement. It doesn't help us get clarity about the kind of uh, movement that would be needed to actually make the kind of change that's needed. And so it doesn't. It's not to dismiss you know the work that people might be doing in small groups and so on. But um, environmental NGOs are not a social movement. Small groups of climate justice activists are not a social movement and so on. But thousands of people taking collective action uh, in the way that happened in the September of 2019 and then the run-up to it and continued after that too. And the, the way that so much of that energy flowed into solidarity with the wet Wooten struggle, right? That was very important. And then the pandemic hit. And that's a world historic event for all sorts of reasons. But one of the things is that it, what it did to kill um, or severely wound the climate movement, including the climate justice wing of it in not just this society, but many societies. And so I, I think it's true that what we have today is, you know, a lot of people who are, have got climate politics, right? Climate justice, people who've got some of those ideas, that experience of 2019 didn't, didn't go away and things that have happened since then, you know, led people to continue to be political about this. But um, there's not something that we could call a movement. And I don't know, um, it may well be that something will happen that will provoke a, another mobilization that looks a little bit like or somewhat like what we saw in 2019. But it's also possible that social eruptions are going to happen around other uh, points, other flashpoints. And then the challenge will be how supporters of climate justice can participate in those things around the cost of living, things around whatever it might be, uh, and make connections. That's something I try to talk about in the book as well, because I think there's a danger that we think that future, the next round of, of, a, of uh, what happens will look like the last round. And I think that's a longstanding problem on the left. Um, and history is usually a lot more nonlinear than that. 
Great. Thanks. Uh, James, do you want to respond to? Sure. Yeah, I think uh, David is spot on there. And I think kind of the question before us, you know, as we have these uprisings, we have these large spontaneous mobilizations. What do we do? What structures do we create? What organizations do we create to sustain them and to allow people to grow, deepen their analysis, deepen their skills, and so that we have something more where the climate strike mobilizations or like the the BLM mobilizations of the past year, year of COVID time has shifted. I don't know anymore recently uh, to stop them from just being spontaneous uprisings that happen and then fade out. And, you know, how do we actually have it that's democratic? And people are feeling not just ownership, but like they can actively be part of it. And I think uh, I just thought of this for the first time. So don't quote me on this. I need to think about it more. But like uh, for all its failings, I think the Occupy movement was more so in that way, because anyone could show up to the square or whatever and like have some sort of democratic process. And there was there wasn't much to sustain it. There wasn't organizations. There wasn't like a party of some sort. But it's an interesting model. Um, I'm not saying we should all sit down and have very lengthy consensus meetings, though. That's not the answer. Thanks, David. Uh, Simon, do you have anything you want to add to this discussion? N- nothing major, but yeah, I think that the the point that in Canada, whatever could pass as an environmental movement um, or people who are interested in environmental justice or perhaps overly reliant on the big environmental NGOs is a good point. Um, I think also I think about, you know, what does that mean for those of us in places like Saskatchewan that don't have huge environmental NGOs at work here the way that, say, BC does? Um, And it means that we have to think about our organizing differently. It means that we can't rely on those NGOs. And it means that, um, yeah, in in a lot of ways, I think that uh, here in the prairies, we're in the belly of the beast. Um, Saskatchewan has the highest per capita emissions in Canada. um, And... I feel I feel daunted, but also hopeful about the kinds of organizing that can emerge from the prairies because um, because of some of the particular circumstances we have here, um, and in part because of you know I because of that lack of um, environmental activism sort of being centralized and managed by environmental NGOs. Yeah, thanks. That's such an interesting perspective to bring to this. Like the sort of geography of the struggle and like where, uh, you know, what is happening where. What about you, Sarah? Do you have anything you want to add to the? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I found really valuable about the book was that uh, David brought up that climate organizing can spark in places that don't seem necessarily like they're directly related to the climate. And that that kind of organizing towards, um, you know, in environmental movements, it can begin elsewhere. And one of the things I think is, is important especially in places like Saskatchewan, places that are um, that, that tend to not have that kind of cohesive movement and, and tend not to have attention paid to them uh, by those by those larger structures, as, as Saima mentioned, is looking at the things that, that are happening on the ground and making connections between, you know, various other movements and various other organizing that is happening and, and directing that with climate. Like, for instance, like, there, there are there. There is some work towards abolition, um, the abolition of police and prisons in Saskatchewan. And abolition is a, is a climate justice issue. Uh, it is, you know, from McMaggie to Wet'suwet'en, it is the police who are arresting land and water defenders. It is the police who are eating up twenty to thirty percent of a, a given mis- municipality's budget, uh, which is money that could be going towards a just adaptation, that could be going towards building structures uh, that can withstand 
climate impacts that could be going towards things like better public transit, that could be going to sustainable housing, that could be going to building these things up. And so looking at those places uh, where people are organizing towards social justice and making those connections and and doing those things. And um, I also think that, you know, looking at municipalities and the strength that municipalities have. So, you know, 44% of the given emissions, like municipalities have control over 44% of emissions in Canada. And that is something that we can look at and we can look at where, how can we pressure our city councils? How can we bring about other movements that are organizing against the police that are organizing uh, towards better schools, towards organizing all of these things? And how can we bring that and, and put pressure on these smaller governments, these smaller councils and, and and things like that. So just making those connections between the organizing and the infrastructure that is already there and trying to work within that, I think is something that is, is really valuable when it comes to climate organizing. Great. Thank you. I'm just going to um, turn to the audience questions now and try to sort of compress them. A number of people have asked um, uh, about the question of hope. Uh, because this conversation has has brought that up, as well as uh, the book uh, and the topic in general um, raised it. And Dorothy asked the question about um, the kind of the the possible like how how your thoughts, uh, David and um, and and others too, have um, been shaped by the COVID experience and the pandemic experience, and and what are the parallels between or possible p- parallels to connect. Uh, the ways in which the um, you know the 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 battle over the definition and the and and how to think about the the pandemic and how to think about uh, the character of COVID and how it spreads and and so on like all of those struggles how that connects to um, the climate struggle climate justice struggle that sorry David that was that was directed at you I don't know if that's an answerable question in this well. <laughs> It's, it's a great question. And the funny thing is that, so um, in recent months, uh, some certain amount of my um, energy in terms of uh, union stuff has been going into work around COVID-19 health and workplace health and safety. Uh, but I haven't really thought very much about this in relation to the climate or, or the ecological questions more broadly. I mean, it is part of the ecological crisis. And I think maybe a starting point is that we have to recognize that climate change is one part of a broader ecological crisis that has a bunch of different dimensions to it, many of them. One of them is the spread of zoonotic diseases like, you know, SARS-CoV-2, uh, the virus that causes COVID-19. And there are also the ways in which the ecological crisis is likely to, you know, give us more pandemics. And so, yeah, there, there are questions around uh, how we understand, you know, how people, ordinary people can appropriate the scientific knowledge for themselves and uh, try to cut through the way that it's uh, presented to us by the state. Um, that's an interesting kind of, uh, you know, maybe connection between climate and, and pandemic politics. Um, you know, their dynamics are really different in, in lots of ways too, but the, and the way that these, you know, both of them can be approached uh, or framed for us as if they're supposedly not political, right? The idea that we all have to come together to solve the climate crisis because it's a climate a problem. It's a problem for humanity that we all caused that thing, which was already mentioned. Um, and, you know, also the pandemic can be presented uh, as something that's also uh, outside of politics, outside of social relations. Uh, and we need to you know, question both those stories to go back to where Sarah was starting in terms of how we tell stories about what, what's happening. Um, and they, they, we need to address both of them um, 
from the perspective of, I guess, more broadly what we could call ecological justice. But I, yeah, it's it, there's more that could be said about that that I have not thought through. No, and that's a. Uh, Jane and both Jane and, and Matthew raise an interesting, but two kind of interrelated questions that is uh, that plays an important role in the in the in this book too. This discussion about political parties and whether or not you know there's any um, hope or uh, what is the you know if, if there's any hope for that kind of party representative democracy form um, that we have currently to struggle around in tackling climate crisis or, you know, so their question is, what are you thinking about party politics or how does the book address party politics and its um, relationship to mass movements and climate struggle in general? Should people be putting their energy into different forms of democracy uh, or democratic um, building or should our political parties, uh, as they, as we have them now, worth, worth the time, effort, effort and emotional investment? It's an interesting question to ask after what's just happened in the BC NDP, um, which should be very instructive um, for anyone who's thinking about uh, the NDP as a potential vehicle for climate justice politics. Um, but uh, again, I'll be as brief as possible on this. The book does talk about it a bit. And parties are, a, you know, they're, they're a reality. And so and supporters of climate justice need to think about where political parties fit in relation to uh, our goals. But uh, I don't think that it's possible for um, the kind of just transition that's needed to be achieved simply by electing a political party that supported climate justice into office uh, because of the nature of the, the state being a capitalist state. And um, this presumes that there will be such a party, right? We don't have a political party that's committed to climate justice among the major parties. Um, but even if there was such a party, even if it was possible to take over an existing party or start a new party, that doesn't solve the problem. Uh, because I think it would be a big mistake to think that uh, fossil capital would simply allow uh, a democratically elected party within a parliamentary system to implement uh, a just transition. And that's why social movements uh, and the struggle of mass social movements is, is so important, uh, if there's going to be any hope of a just transition. Some other kind of transition is another whole question, because there can be other transitions from, from fossil fuels other than just ones. But that's another story. Great. Yeah. That's a that's an interesting parallel, important parallel to raise with the BC case. I'm just going to ask um, one more uh, a question that's in the chat, which because uh, we're we're getting close to our time here, and maybe others can also tune in in response after after David responds. But um, Julia is asking about what is the role of the labor movement um, in fighting climate change or the climate crisis, um, given that. Uh, the power that working people have to disrupt capitalism, it seems to be an important part of this piece. Yeah, I so mean, David, I do you want to go? And then Sarah, Simon, and Jane can uh, also say a few words. I'll, I'll just say very briefly that the, the working class understood in its broadest sense, right? Everybody who's selling their ability to work in exchange for wages, um, who doesn't have significant management authority and all the unwaged people that depend on those their wages. Um, the working class has enormous potential social power. Uh, and you know, in the workplace and uh, in society more more broadly, the possibility of working class struggle being, you know, it's, it's critical to um, the, the possibility of a, of a just transition. The relationship between that and the actually existing institutions of the, you know, the mass organizations of, of the labor movement, which in this society means mostly, mostly unions, which exist in a, you know, very bureaucratic form, highly constrained by the state's labor relations regime. I mean, that's, 
a complicated question because unions are absolutely important. I mean, because their struggle can worker struggle can flow through unions, but there are also many ways in which those unions do not uh, promote the struggle of workers, and so the unions have to be a very important part of how climate justice activists uh, think about the kind of just transition and how it might be achieved. But there are um, it's, it's a lot more complicated than unfortunately what we might wish it. Uh, would be just because of the, the nature of the organizations, um, you know, their bureaucratic character and the, the politics of their of the official, the, the layer of full-time officers and staff that that runs the organizations. And also the last point is I just think that um, there's a way in which the development of climate justice consciousness and, and action inside unions is going to be spurred in important ways by things that happen outside unions and feed into unions uh, as well. So it's not a question of having to choose between um, you know, it's not a question of putting all the eggs in one basket. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Oh, just very quickly that I think that there's a way in which, you know, politicization of people take, taking to the streets in ways like happened in late 2019 and other kinds of ways, um, that's going to happen more quickly outside of unions in many cases than influence unions, kind of permeate unions or bubble up as members who are participants, but not, you know, they may be participating in the social movement activity, but not as union members, right? Um, they bring that struggle back into the union and and try to work for change within the the union. Uh, That's, I think, something we've seen happen in various ways in in the past. And so um, I guess there's a a book that came out this year called Climate Change is Class War by Matt Huber, which I think in response to a lot of the weaknesses of uh, climate politics bends the stick very hard towards unions in a way that I think is not actually helpful. Um, And so we need to avoid that problem on the one hand, but also the you know not taking um, unions and working class struggle seriously, which is a big problem for a lot of climate uh, activism. Thanks, um, Barry. Tara, do you have anything you want to say in response to that question? Uh, yeah, I, I think the the one thing that I would I would add to that uh, is that when we look at the organizing that's going on, like uh, really valuable organizing that's going on around climate, it is often taking place outside of unions, and it's taking place among people who are not part of unions. It's taking place among youth who do not have jobs uh, or do not have jobs that allow them to be unionized. Uh, it's taking place among you know gig workers and and workers who are in really precarious. Pr- positions and don't have the protection of unions. It's it's taking place uh, among people who, who belong to a, a peasant class where they do not have that kind of structural uh, protection. And I think that we should think really deeply about what it is, you know, and I'm, I'm wearing my Unifor Local shirt. I, I am glad to be a part of a union. I, I you know, uh, believe in, in the power of the labor union uh, movement, but I do think we should be thinking a lot about what it is about these workers who do not uh, um, have the the protection of a union or who are not part of a, like a larger union structure and, and how are they building that power and, and what are they doing with that power? And then how can we learn from them as people who are part of unions, as people who are unionized workers and, and apply those kinds of pressures? Uh, because I, I do think very much that in, in the same way that social movements need to uh, figure out how they can, you know, pressure like ways that they can pressure government effectively. We also need to be think about how do we pressure our union leadership and and how do we move the needle uh, within our unions because it's not going to come from the top down any kind of change is not going to come from the the bureaucratic structures it's going to come from the people and it's going to come from workers uh, and it's going to be come from the grassroots and so I think that that's something to really think about
think about uh, when we're talking about what role the labor movement has is, is what do we mean by the labor movement? Do we mean the bureaucratic uh, structures or do we mean workers? Right on. Thanks, Dara. Uh, Simon. Yeah, I think some, some very good points have been made about um, unions in Canada and the ways that their hands are tied by leadership and their bureaucracy. Um, I think that what really needs to be done is to democratize unions. Um, and I think that that will have impacts far beyond um, workers advocating for climate justice. Um, I think it'll improve, you know, um, it'll improve worker power in general. Um, but in order to do that, in order to um, have union membership um, fight to democratize their unions um, and to see climate justice as part of what they're fighting for, I think we sort of have to think about how, how do we frame um, climate justice and how do we frame climate change? So one way that I think um, is interesting is um, is to sort of frame climate change as an occupational health and safety issue. Um, so this sort of ties into uh, the connections between the pandemic and climate change. I think that if we, if workers are equipping themselves with the tools to fight for um, the right to refuse unsafe work, um, to fight for decent working conditions under the pandemic, that sets them up well to um, have those same protections and fight similarly um, for um, decent working conditions, the right to refuse unsafe work during um, climate disasters, which we will all certainly face. Um, so I think that is, that's the biggest thing. And, I, and it also moves us towards um, towards responses to climate change that are not just climate policies to slash greenhouse gas emissions at any cost, but to do so in a, in a just way. I do think that, um, that workers fighting to democratize their unions, um, and to leverage the power of, you know, working in concert of bargaining in concert of striking in concert will be really important to that. Great. Thanks, Emma. Jane? Yeah, I think this is kind of like a million dollar question and the really missing link. Um, first, I would just really recommend that everyone read David's other book, Canadian Labour in Crisis. It's very helpful, short, accessible, for thinking about labour. Um, I had a mentor when I was working at the Canadian Union of Postal Workers who told me that outside of withdrawing your labour and interfering in capitalist accumulation, like all you're really doing is begging. You're just begging the state and decision makers to do stuff unless you've actually got power. And I think that's kind of the real question. And we're thinking about climate change is how do we have power? How do we build power? And for that, it's workers and their organizations. Now, as everyone has mentioned, labor unions are just, they're contradictory, they're bureaucratic, there's a whole bunch of restrictions on them. Um, but the labor movement that exists today is not the labor movement that existed 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, and so even if a union wanted to bargain on climate change, it's quickly, their hands are very quickly tied about what's the principal bargaining subject, what they can act on, or how they can act, you know? If you have uh, workers refusing uh, to, uh, the closest example that comes to mind is recent memory, is refusing to load weapons for Saudi Arabia. If you had something like that for climate, you quickly have the weight of the state come down on you. And there's nothing to support that. So we have to rewrite the rules that govern unions or think about new forms of workers' organizations. Um, and so part of that, you know, I think we have to think about defying back-to-work legislation, defying the restrictions on solidarity strikes, defying all the things that have made labor so far less powerful while trying to renew labor in its whole and put climate justice on the bargaining table. And the last thing I'll say is that one of the things 
that has given me the most hope is seeing some of the really cool shit coming out of the U.S. right now uh, and the ways that people are doing and experimenting with that. And perhaps it's because stuff has gotten so bad that they've been forced to experiment and really go all out. And we'll see what develops in Canada. And I think the COVID, uh, the way people have been pushing through that through unions, has a glimpse of insight that we can look to there. Great. Thank you for all these brilliant and provocative uh, answers. So great to so great to hear. I, I we're at we're at time, and I but I just want to ask uh, Phil's question because I think it speaks to uh, also a bunch of things we've been talking about, and is a good way to sort of uh, round out or wrap up our discussion. So if you'll forgive me for stretching it a couple more minutes, and in, in, in the name of audience uh, appreciation, um, is. Phil is asking a question about the kind of uh, preconditions or the uh, what are the conditions of possibility for eco-socialism is like interested in in your thoughts uh, about that, David, about, you know, is it are you concerned that uh, I'll just write I'll just read this final part of the question. Are you concerned that runaway climate change could result in a world in which the material basis for eco-socialism does not exist and all the old shit will return or remain? Right. Thank you for that question, Phil. Um, it's interesting because it um, connects to something I've been thinking about for something else that I've begun to, to work on. But yes, <laughs> this is a short answer to that. But um, so just to, to back up for a second, you know, there's always been an assumption for socialists um, in the broadly speaking Marxist Marxian tradition um, that there have to be certain kinds of material preconditions in place in order to have a transition from capitalism towards socialism in the, the genuine sense. Um, so, you know, there was a reason that it couldn't develop out of feudalism, for example, that capitalism had to um, develop the productive powers of human labor enough that you could have a, a shared abundance rather than just a sharing of, of poverty and conditions in which a new class of rulers would inevitably rise again. Um, and I think that the challenges of the ecological crisis are, are real, but a part of it's about also um, reconceptualizing or kind of Review, rethinking a little bit about what we mean by abundance, um, because I think that there, I think that the conditions, uh, you know, that have all, all all the forms of productivity and um, interconnectedness that have been created under capitalism, you know, do provide us the basis to break with capitalism and begin a transition to eco-socialism. But uh, you know, we could easily imagine a scenario in which the ecological crisis and other crises uh, make it very, very difficult um, for people to organize collectively because the, just the deterioration of, you know, of, of everyday life um, being, being so extreme. I think that's, you know, a nightmarish kind of scenario. One which, um, you know, I'm not saying that Marx actually had a crystal ball that, that saw that, but Marx in general terms did talk about how societies, um, when they go into profound crises, sometimes can, you know, out of that crisis can emerge a new form of society, but also you can get the mutual ruination of the contending classes, to use a, a term of Marx's, out of which nothing new and better arises. So that's, you know, Rosa Luxemburg's uh, famous line about the alternatives being socialism or barbarism. And I think that's also true in, a, in, in, in our time and in relation to the ecological crisis. Um, but I do think that on the hopeful side of things that you could have a transition to eco-socialism uh, beginning that uh, could be... Uh, you know, could, could go quite a long way towards reconstructing society, even at the same time as there was a reduction in energy use, for example, to levels below what we are using in uh, most of the advanced capitalist countries right now, so that um, abundance doesn't have to look like US and Canada 2021. 
Right. And all the questions. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, just it's a question of being able to meet people's needs, right? That's the the key question. You need to have a level of productivity and social interconnectedness that makes it possible to meet people's physical, uh, social uh, needs as well. So physical needs, social needs, and the needs for for free time, which I think are three different dimensions of the needs that people uh, have. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is this, uh, you know, the struggle for time or abundance of time, uh, wealth in terms of this free time to be able to do what we will right, is a really important part of this. And and I think one of the things that your book really raises is the possibility for, um, uh, rather than thinking about this in, in, in bleak apocalyptic terms, but thinking about these questions in like what kinds of, um, how, how can we redefine abundance and the good life and uh, our relationships with one another and in for a more uh, joyful existence um, rather than uh, rather than this sort of bad ideas that we are being handed in as responses or possible response, so-called responsible responses to the climate crisis. So I want to thank you all so much for uh, joining us and thank you all for the uh, to the audience for your excellent questions and your engagement with this important book. Um, I'm going to uh, pass it back to John now, who will uh, wrap us up. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much, Fiona. And I'll continue that gratitude as well. It was uh, so wonderful and really energizing to just be able to sit here and uh, listen to all you folks. So I'm so grateful for all your thoughtful contributions to everybody on the panel as well around this very important book. And also so grateful to all the engagement from the audience as well. Lots of great comments, lots of incredible questions as well. So I think this was a really generative discussion. I'm just pleased to have been a part of it. Um, I'll express my gratitude to Fernwood Publishing, of course, up in Canada for publishing this book and making this whole event happen. Thank you so very much. It was It's always a pleasure to work with Fernwood, and they publish such incredible books that anytime we get a chance to uh, throw together an event for one of them, it's utterly delightful. Uh, David very kindly stopped by early on today as well and uh, signed some copies of the book, as you can see from the little sticker on the front. So if you would like a signed copy of this book, please do uh, visit the store. And really, if you'd like any copy of this book, please do visit the store, give us a call or order a copy online. This is a book we'd love to get into a lot of people's hands and we have quite a few copies. So please do avail yourself of the opportunity to read this and be engaged by this book as well. So I'd just like to close once again by thanking everybody on the panel, uh, to Sarah, to James, to Sama, to David, uh, to Fiona for your wonderful hosting as well. Thank you so very much. And uh, thank you all. Have a wonderful evening, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Take care. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.